Welcome to Dreaming Different. I'm your host, Jez Chung, and today's guest is Kevin Gotkin. I'm so excited for this conversation about neuroqueerness, about just who we are in general, about access magic, about terminology and language that Kevin has taught me. And I'll start off with a visual description of myself today. As you know from previous episodes, I am Korean. I have long black hair that's currently pulled back into this slick pony. I am wearing a lime green one shoulder top, and I usually wear fun makeup around my eyes. Today, I have these green gems. It's like light green and neon green gems in the shape of a flower, and I have one um, around each of my eyes. And I'll pass it off to you, Kevin, for your visual description. Hello, hello. This is Kevin. Um, so I am sitting in the, I think, probably growing sunlight uh, of, of Brooklyn, Lenape Hoking. Um, I am a scruffy white person. I have a um, kind of a mustache thing happening. Um, I'm wearing, I'm also in the green scenario with you. Um, I'm wearing a bright uh, kind of neon green shirt, my favorite color. Um, And I'm wearing a beanie that is kind of um, like black and white tie-dye. And I have over the ear headphones. um, And there's a brick wall behind me with a text-based artwork by an artist named Jen White Johnson. And it says, create more anti-ableist spaces. Yes, we love Jen White Johnson, also a guest on this audio series. (laughs) Um, I want to start off by sharing with the listeners and the readers of how we met and the impact that you've made on me in the time that we know in each other. I think it's actually been, as we're recording this, I think it's been about a year since we met. And We met at this nightlife safety forum um, that Oscar Nunez of Poppy Juice um, organized. And it was after something tragic that happened in New York City, queer nightlife. And we came together to talk about safety. And um, I think this is a, a topic that both of us have been talking about separately and we kind of think a lot about. And I remember um, I came to that forum a bit late and I didn't get to hear you speak at the very beginning. And as soon as the forum ended, my friend, one of my uh, one of my best friends, Yanni, came up to me and said, Jess, you have to go meet this person over there because they were talking about everything that you always talk about and I think that you really need to meet. And so I saw who my friend Yannick was pointing at and you're wearing this lime green, speaking of lime green, this bright, it was, it was like neon green actually, whole outfit, like head to toe. I think you had a matching mask and I was like immediately you are my people. (laughs) And (laughs) I just came up to you. And then we were probably just like kicking about our love for color and sensory joy and then talking about sensory safety and all these things. And and then I think since then, um, you know, we've just kind of kept in touch and we, uh, you brought me in to work, um, together on this disability pride month event with the Lincoln Center in uh, July of 2022. An evening of access magic is what you called it. And even that language, this is truly, I think the biggest impact you've made on uh, me is you've introduced me to so much language that has been so illuminating for me in terms of how I want to contribute to and learn about the legacy of disability justice. And you have an amazing newsletter, Crip Crip News. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Crip News that you've been <laughs> um that you've been curating about disability arts and politics and everything you write about and all the work that you do is like this portal to me. And you talk about, you know, magic a lot too. So I just love that you approach access through a creative and artistic lens, through a communal lens. And 
just all that to say, I think meeting you was a moment of magic. And I'm such a huge admirer of the way that you think and the experiences that you dream up. And so excited to talk to you about access and neurodiversity and queerness and wherever else this conversation, this conversation <laughs> takes us. Oh my gosh. I'm smiling so widely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yes, I am so grateful just to be in your presence, Jez, and to have connected with you. Um, yeah, there's like a mind melt. There's a, there's a sinking up, I think that happens, you know, with, with rad neurodivergent babes that you meet out and you're just like, oh my gosh, we have been sifting through the same things privately, maybe alone or with other people. And then when you connect, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like when a, like a raindrop, I don't know, slowly descending a window, like hits another one and then they move together. I don't know. I'm just kind of, (laughs) I'm just, you know, that kind of like speeding up of like, wow. Yeah. And, um, it's just, it's, yeah, it feels very magical for me too. I'm so, so grateful to be here with you. Oh, amazing. Well, this brings us to our first question that I've been asking every guest. What are you thinking differently about lately? Uh, so much. Yeah. So, so much. Um, yeah, I feel like, so maybe just also a little bit of background about me, like, um, uh, yeah, I've been thinking differently about how to do a little background because um, I just am always wondering, like, who am I? Who do I? Um, where do I go to to describe who I am? And and there was one time a few years ago when I was like, why don't I just take the question actually as my identity? So I do sometimes go by who girl, just like the uncertainty, the mommy of the house of uncertainty, as I like to say sometimes. Um, I think for me also like describing my background, it's like, um, I could resort to all of these like institutional affiliations, which then kind of just lends itself to a very careerist approach. And I just, I'm a disability organizer and the experience for most people of disability in the U.S. is not being able to meaningfully participate in an accessible workplace. So then when we're out here, like naming our affiliations with workplaces, I just find it kind of runs counter to like solidarity, you know, and like how we, how we should be focusing more on like anti-professional, like, you know, connections. But there, you know, maybe I will just kind of name some of the places I've been just because it is helpful. So I was an academic um, until, yeah, just like a year and a half ago. That was like the, the world that I was in. I started 10 years ago in 2012 is when I entered disability community um, in, in the academic world. So disability studies was this like field that I discovered. Um, and yeah, and, and I stayed in that world and was like, dreaming of being a professor forever. And, um, and I just kind of started getting agitated. I wanted things to move quickly and like, I wanted there to be more meaningful, broad work. And I think I slowly identified like I'm an organizer actually, maybe more than a professor or a scholar. Um, and so I moved out of academia and became an organizer and, that term is actually very messy. So sometimes I say I'm a disorganizer because it's like, oh. actually, maybe messing shit up is more important than organizing it. But I also love the way when people identify themselves as community organizers or as organizers, it's this like rich legacy of activist work, you know, like, like there are so many different kinds of organizers. If we were all just organizers, if we could all be the, have the bandwidth to just focus on things that are happening for us, like what an incredible, Mm. um, world we would live in, you know? So, so, but I have been thinking differently about what it means to be an organizer. I think when I left academia, I needed to like latch on to this other thing. And I wanted to describe myself well, but I didn't really, you know, it was always just unsatisfying to meet someone new and just be like, I don't really know what it is that I'm doing. You know, I'm kind of in the art world. I like to teach. I like to facilitate. I like to study. Like, you know, what is it? And um, I came out with this like really intense interest in being identified as an organizer, you know, like I'm organizing. And it was very like plainly served to me that I was 
I don't know, like deputizing myself to do all this work that maybe like wasn't actually for me to do. And what I needed to do as an organizer was actually just like figure out what has been happening before I got here and figure out what old knowledge is our communities already hold. Like organizing seems to suggest we're going to build this new thing and construct so much like new stuff. And I think what that does is, yeah, it's I've learned in community that that buries a lot of stuff that is already there and we're just ignoring in our like you know rush to to do something new so i think i don't know maybe i want to identify the thing i'm thinking differently about is like maybe being almost an organizer <laughs> like maybe yeah. i'm almost organizing um and uh yeah and so the stuff that i'm working on right now is like figuring out how to get artists guaranteed income checks. I'm working on a guaranteed income program right now and also an artist employment program. And it's, yeah, I feel like there's so much newness and so much that I'm learning every day that I want to bring humility and curiosity into my work. And so I'm thinking differently just about like how we identify professionally, how we identify in community, how we name like in truth, you know, what what mm. we're doing in the world and how we're doing that and how we can do that with the least amount of harm and the most amount of possibility for building collective power. Yes. Oh, I love all that. And I love your intentionality of language because that is a form of care. Like to be careful about the language we use to really think about what does this mean? What does the term organizing mean? That's something that I think has been uh, become really ubiquitous within maybe the social circles that we're a part of in New York and um, kind of the worlds that we're a part of. And I really like your point about, I mean, organizing can be organizing information too, right? Organizing people, organizing experiences, um, which kind of, you know, in, in as your work as uh, in academia, as a professor, that's what you were doing, organizing information and sharing it and, and also organizing as a term of um, addressing needs, understanding yeah. what those needs are. And in order to understand what those needs are, we do that kind of research and um, that kind of sifting through history of what is the legacy that we come from um, of queer liberation, of disability justice, of abolition, of transformative justice. All these things is kind of, uh, we are almost organizing ourselves within the future mm. to the, mm. pre the past, present, and future of this work. So that's a really beautiful kind of seed to, mm. to plant in people to think about what am I organizing within my life too? What am I you know, or how am I orienting myself? I think that's a, another question too that comes up with what you share. But it's also, I think all of this is a form of queering. Mm. Um, organizing too. It's queering, yeah. organizing, it's queering um, the future, it's queering the past, the present. And I want to talk to you about the term neuroqueer because I think, you know, when I was talking to you about just neurodiversity in general. And I asked, so do you identify as neurodivergent? And you said, you know, I actually identify with the term neuroqueer. Mm. And I'd heard it before, but I want you to kind of share how you discovered this language and what it means to you. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah, I, I love that you mentioned the way language organizes, you know, and and I think about that a lot. I'm someone, maybe this is the academic kind of uh, like energy in me, like a lot of academic work is like trying to find the language. And, and, you know, sometimes it's, I worry that it's a lot of distraction, you know, because people are like, here, use my term. And it's like, well, do we have to use, like, what if, we, what if there's so many terms and we're all actually trying to name the same thing? Like, why does it matter if we use this or that? Um, people hold so much fear around the right kind of language. So sometimes I'm like, well, it's maybe less important that we, decide what particular thing to call this, then like make sure that we're anchored in like values that align, you know? Um, so yeah, there's an artist and organizer, Saray Jarrell Johnson, that has like taught me a lot about that, right? Like the politics of language and disability, very important. And, impo you know, there's been a lot of side of activism around language, but sometimes, you know, people just kind of, I don't know, like they want to attack each other for particular words and not for like the larger ways that we're embedded in systems of violence. And we, anyway, so just to say- It's really 
the language is kind of an opening for the practice. Yes, yes, exactly. That's how I think about it. So it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, this language, for me, the language then becomes a portal to the practice. Yes, yes. And I think that's it. Like if if it's a portal, then like really important to create the right portals. Sometimes though, I feel like people end with, you know, like especially in institutions, people are like, what's the right language we should put on our website? And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like there's so many other things we have to talk about with this. So yeah. And, um, neuroqueerness, I mean, it, it has this, um, I think a real pleasure and satisfaction in finding that, finding that as a name, you know, and being like, oh my gosh, that is the container for a lot of my experience. I think that that, um, that is so satisfying for a lot of folks who have come to disability and come to identify as disabled as I have, um, through non-apparent disability experiences. So stuff that really evades like the huge regime of biocertification, determination of who is and isn't disability. Um, A lot of people not wanting to take up the term because they feel like there's people more deserving in some very abstract way, right? Um, And so people are like, well, I'm not, I'm not disabled, right? Um, And that was- Which is very similar with queerness too. People are like, I'm allowed to with my- Past experiences are not quote unquote queer. Yeah. And like, for sure, we should be keeping tabs because we have so many finite resources that need to be distributed in ways that are genuinely like, you know, oriented to justice. Like that is important. Um, But I, yeah, I think I've found that also my experience, like I, I can organize my life and organize better in my work when I do identify with the term and, and see like, what does this really open up for me? And, um, so neuroqueerness has this, yeah, it just has the satisfaction of being like, that's that thing that I've been trying to find. Um, I, I, yeah, I should say like, it, it, I would put neuroqueerness in this web of weirdness. So like neurodivergence, um, terms like mad or even crazy that are being reclaimed um, from folks who have survived or also use um, psychiatric systems, um, uh, um, folks who, you know, are doing autistic organizing. Um, uh, I also love the term bonkers. Um, there's, There's like all of these kind of there's like a web of these terms that neuroqueerness sits within. And and I, you know, just to, yeah, kind of continue what we were just saying, I don't necessarily think we need to figure out the right ones or triage, like which ones should take priority. Cause it just, the, the many terms just reflect a wonderful variety of movement work and dreams that are out there. Um, and, people have really intense connections to one or another term. And, you know, we should always hew to what people want to, to be called and what language they're using to organize their, their, um, their lives. Um, but, uh, I, so I guess within this web of weirdness, I will say one organizing principle that I have found um, is that when we identify as neuroqueer, neurodivergent, mad, bonkers, um, we are sharing a desire to bring the weirdness internal, which is very different from the way that terms like mental illness have been deployed, um, you know, with really good intentions in many cases, but as a way of trying to separate this experience of, you know, a break from normativity from some like core to the person, right? So like, and you know, there have been times in my life when it's been important for me to say like, I'm sick, I'm sick right now. Like I do need to just recognize that I am in a flow with this thing that is acting on me. But and you'll hear that a lot, like with folks who are doing like mental health act- activism, folks who use mental illness or mental health as a um, as terms. Like it's really helpful to say like this person is not their neurodivergence. I get it. You know that's a politically expedient. That is important work, strategic work. Um, but the the web of weirdness that that I'm interested in does take that neurodivergence and makes it intrinsic to say like, this can't be separated out from who I am. Like neuroqueerness being neurodivergent, that defines the way that I move through all of the ecologies that I'm in. Um, And that is 
precious and important, something that can, you know, ident like we can identify with and it's not shameful. There should be no stigma around it. So, you know, that, that those kind of models of like weirdness from within that you want to cultivate, right? Like to say like, this names why I don't fit in the world in many ways. This names that friction or this discomfort in the world. Um, and that's, you know, that's good. That's fine. I don't need to shape myself to fit in the world. Maybe the world is crazy, and I'm not crazy, but the world is crazy. Look at the way these exactly. systems are designed, right? That So that basically, you know, society is crazy. We're not crazy. That's a really important, like, legacy for mad activism, um, you know, just to look at the social construction of sanity, you know, and who has been, who is it that's been um, claimed to be, you know, threateningly irrational or unreasonable, right? Like, it usually tracks with people who are experiencing forms of oppression along the lines of race and gender and queerness and transness, you know, class, nationality, religion, all of this tracks. And then you have to at a certain point realize like, wait, <laughs> there's all of these groups that are suddenly being told that we're crazy. So hmm, doesn't this kind of suggest that medicalization of things like mental illness is inextricable from all these forces of dispossession and oppression, you know? Um, so there's this kind of intersectionality that is at the heart of this, what I would think of as like a web of weirdness in these terms that we're using. Yes. And all of this, you know, to summarize what you're saying is questioning oppression, question the conditions of oppression mm -hmm. instead of the symptoms yes. of oppression. Because, um, you know, what you're speaking to so much just reminds me of the illuminating feeling I got when I discovered the medical versus social model mm -hmm. of disability mm -hmm. and, you know, medical model of disability kind of being focused on pathologizing people, which, you know, for people unfamiliar with that term, it's just kind of like putting a disorder and a mental illness and like naming things as like, oh, you're this and you're this and you're this and categorizing and kind of labeling people as like, all right, this is your um, disorder or disability. And then the social model of disability kind of encourages us to question the society that actually disables people, the society and the social constructs and the systems that we live within that prevent people from ac accessing buildings or information or community or healthcare. And all of this, you know, something I struggle with consistently as I've as I'm informing myself in more, or more of this work. And as I do, I'm, you know, very big in sharing in real time my learnings online. And I think the, the effect of that is then, you know, people start reaching out to me for consulting work or this different kinds of work or speaking and they want me to talk about this. And, and then I, kind of struggle between how do I make this language accessible in terms of this is so, I think, new for a lot of people because the, well, to be frank, ableism is just so ingrained in our society. I think that is something that we're kind of waking up to. And that is something I'm really adamant on kind of saying as often as I can, because we've collectively, especially with the summer of 2020 and all these social movements that have been happening, kind of awakened collectively to systemic racism. But we have not really awakened to systemic ableism because I hear it in the language, in like the everyday language that people use all the time. So I guess that to say it's you know, it's interesting, like the pull between like, how do, you know, people like you and me who are really deep in this and like are committed to this and are think are really, you know, exposing ourselves to and awakening ourselves to um, just different frameworks to think about disability and to think about our bodies and our minds and um, the connection to each other. And really, I think all of this is also a very much more empowering way to look at um look at the ways that we move through the world, which kind of, again, like is, yeah, like when you describe, can you summarize again what, um, 
you summarized this before of neuroqueer, like divesting from blank Mm. and blank at Mm -hmm. the same time. Yes, totally. I mean, what I was going to say is that like what you just said is kind of like your neuroqueering ableism, like in Mm. what, like in how you're describing. Yeah. Like, you know, I said I was kind of an almost organizer. You know, who's 100% an organizer, like no qualifications ableism. <laughs> I mean, like it or, ableism is such a good organizer that it's difficult to even recognize the ways that it organizes. You know, it's just such Ooh. a powerful force and this term neuroqueerness really um it started actually as a verb. You know, so we've already kind of been bandying it back and forth as an identity category, but that's the most recent development. So let me just yeah, let me just kind of give you what I have discovered as the kind of a use history a little bit. Um, And just the qualifications just to say like, you know, um, I don't love like origin stories and clear, you know, sometimes I I realize like the way people have come to talk about the history of a term really tracks reputational networks and who has access to these forms of like resources that can like amplify and then solidify a particular narrative. So just to say like, there could be so many other ways that neuroqueerness has come into the world. And um, yeah, I think it should be a collective project for us to try to access those. But the um, an important kind of citational history here is that um, a scholar, an organizer named Nick Walker, she describes herself as queer, trans, and flamingly autistic, um, introduced this term, neuroqueerness, in a, a paper in grad school in 2008. Um, but she also learned that it was independently discovered by Athena Lynn Michaels Dillon and Remy Yergo, um, all thinking about neuroqueer, neurological queerness. Um, so it was introduced like the word queer was as a thing that, um, that twists and tilts the status quo. I really love like when, when I think about how, what is queer, like how, what does that really mean? Um, I, I go back to a, a text from 1993, this, um, uh, a kind of mother of queer theory, Eve Sedgwick, who identified that the word queer itself um, means a cross. And there are these different root words um, uh, that mean transverse or to twist or a thwart. So there's this kind of like twerking, spinning, twisting thing, you know, non-linearity. Um, and when so when queerness and when neuroqueerness are introduced in these academic settings, it's a it's a thing that you're doing to show, um, yeah, the the kind of contingencies, the the design of neuronormativity and heteronormativity, and the way that those things are connected. So there, um, yeah, one of the the definitions that Nick Walker has put out that I really love is. Neuroqueering is the practice of queering, subverting, defying, disrupting, liberating oneself from neuronormativity and heteronormativity simultaneously. Um, Mm. So that's just, yeah, just to think like, wow, you know, just to share, I guess, on the the personal level, the way this works for me, the way I realize like, oh gosh, those things do my experience of queerness and my experience of neurodivergence are linked is is through the process of being involuntarily medicalized as a child. Um, So I, yeah, I was not really offering consent for some pretty intense um, uh, psychotropic interventions like in my mind, but also then my body minds, like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't distinguish even my mind from my body when I was, for example, switching medications and going through those like really intense withdrawals in like Mm. fifth grade class, you know, where my mind would be totally jostled for a second because it would feel like all the blood was being sucked out of my body and then pumped back into it. And then I would later be like, what the fuck was that? And my, you know, the doctors would be like, that was, you know, that's just withdrawal, honey. Don't worry. That's what happens with SSRIs. And I'm just like, but, um, and yeah, and just it, it got it got intense. And I'll just mention, just you know, encouraging everyone listening to just take care of yourself if you need pause, breathe, whatever you need to do. It 
not long after this kind of involuntarily involuntary medication medicalization, um, I attempted suicide. I think a lot of the ways that I was bullied really intensely, like very targeted, heinous, harmful shit, was along both lines that I was this like queer little boy, you know, this little flamboyant, bring in the faggotry in ways that were not cool, <laughs> you know, that were like just not, you know, like with everything. You know, it was always out of sync, even when I didn't want to be so like marked as outside, you know, I didn't have, I didn't find that I wanted to just be smoothly integrated into like a new school, you know, and there was the queerness, the flamboyance at the same time of me not really knowing like how to act socially in rent. Like I just, I I would study people for how Mm. they would do very casual, like mundane, ordinary things, you know, how people would like stub their toe. I would like, uh, I would uh, like really fixate on trying to like, how do you do these things that should be candid and should just be kind of like authentic. And I always was like, I need to study because I don't know how to act, you know? And I think that that was, yeah, there was, there was some madness. There was some neurodivergence that was completely inextricably entangled up with Mm. my, at that point it was kind of pre-queerness, you know, or it was queer because it was pre-identity. And so, yeah, so that, you know, I was as a, as a little as a little kid, kind of neuroqueering the scenarios that I was in. You know, I was like bringing a markedly different kind of energy that was often marked as a threat. That's kind of why I feel like I was medicated. Like, just make him just kind of fit in, like calm him down, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when if I had maybe queer teachers, they would have been like, oh yeah, look at her, she's killing it. You know, like maybe right. <laughs> maybe it wasn't weird, unless right. of course there's this neuronormativity um, and heteronormativity that that um, overtakes. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, All of this, I guess, what it brings up for me is almost this Venn diagram of forced resilience that Mm. queer folks and neurodivergent folks are kind of have to develop Mm. a forced Mm. resilience, right? Like to be constantly deemed as not normal, as, you know, that's what the divergent and neurodivergent means, like just not normal outside of the norms, outside of what is considered normal, right? Because there really is no such thing as normal. And that's the normalcy is an illusion. But it's this forced resilience of consistently trying to keep yourself alive. I mean, I, I really relate as someone who's experienced very intense symptoms of depression, anxiety, ADHD since a child, like chronic symptoms. And I think when you have those thoughts, those feelings, um, that just kind of constant, the constant voices in your head, the intrusive thoughts, and also just the lack of support. Yes. Right. The lack of institutional support, educational support, familial support, community support, um, all of that, then you are just forced to then, I think the flip side, because, you know, I'm very careful about the way I talk about resilience because it's so like, mm-hmm. it's this forced mm-hmm. narrative upon, mm-hmm. you know, queer and disabled folks. I think the flip side of that is curiosity. Mm. That's like the, I think the, um, the beauty of it for me, because then the resilience then turns into, which is what I hear so much of in what you're saying. I mean, the fact that you've info shared, I use the term info share instead of info yes. dump because it's like, you know, it's kind of softer. And yeah. It's like, it's not dumping. Like, Who share says with this me. Is I want dump. it. Yeah. I know, Who's right? Dump? It's not a dump. It's a share. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm receiving it so openly, but as you're info sharing all of these terms and all this research you've done and even just the course of your life and what you've dedicated yourself to, I think so much of, um, yeah, that resilience has turned into this curiosity. Mm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we have another episode coming up about disability superpowers Mm. and kind of flipping this narrative of like, disabled people are not to be pitied. We're actually leaders. Mm. We are visionaries. There is so much to learn from disabled perspectives and disabled wisdom, the wisdom that comes from having to develop that wisdom and that innovation and that curiosity. So I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's really incredible and beautiful and just so generous also that um, that you've kind of taken those experiences and then just 
developed your values so deeply mm. around it too. You're, I mean, I feel like that you're describing also like the collective movement of the term neuroqueer, right? Like mm. there's the queering of it. That's that, that verb, that action that might not actually be so intentional. You know, it might just be these, these neuroqueer kids like trying to fit in and, try, and, you know, experiencing these harmful things. Um, but then we, yeah, we use that, those experiences, even before we have the language and find the language to then bring that inside, you know? So that's where, um, yeah, that's where neuroqueerness becomes an identity for a lot of people who, um, you know, one of the things that Nick Walker says is you're neuroqueer if you neuroqueer. <laughs> so like, mm. you know, that also opens up the possibility for, for all these kind of oblique attachments to this, you know, for people to realize like, huh, again, like maybe I don't have what I think of as like the right credentialing to claim this, but actually if neuroqueering is this process of kind of unfolding, like pulling back the layers of this ableist, sanest onion that is the world, you know, like that, that there's so many different ways to be involved with that. Um, and yeah, and, and maybe just, just so I, you know, I want to make sure that folks have like a a grounding in like in this term, you know, um, and also to honor the the history of the organizing that has brought this. Um, I think I hope more and more fully, more and more legibly and familiarized into the world. Um, I'll just kind of quickly gloss the. Um, there's eight points that Nick Walker proposes as a as a definition for neuro queerness and 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 um so I'll just kind of go through them and that way maybe folks can yeah listen with their own that kind of curiosity born of enforced resilience as you're talking about and and I don't know maybe folks I hope I would imagine folks listening to this right now really will yeah will find themselves in in this but um so the first point is being both neuro neurodivergent and queer with some degree of conscious awareness and or active exploration around how these two aspects of one's being intertwine and interact. So like just activating that curiosity, that is kind of like the first point, like being curious about the two things, neurodivergence, queerness. Um, it's also embodying and expressing one's neurodivergence in ways that also queer one's performance of gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and or other aspects of one's identity. Um, so being neurodivergent and that expressing intentionally or not um, a kind of twisting or torquing of other kinds of performance of identity, especially gender sexuality, um, that's a neuroqueer uh, experience. Um, the third is engaging in practices intended to undo and subvert one's own cultural conditioning and one's ingrained habits of neuronormative and heteronormative performance. I think that's really important, kind of like internal work, like to draw out the ways that we have tried to, yeah, internalize the the ableist status quo and undoing that, a really important kind of personal work. Um, there's also engaging in queering of one's own neurocognitive processes by intentionally altering them in ways that create significant and lasting increase in one's divergent from prevailing cultural standards. I, I love that. Again, like more personal work, like get as weird as possible, become the exquisite neuroqueer self. Um, Okay, fifth, fifth point here is approaching, embodying, and or experiencing one's neurodivergence as a form of queerness. For example, in mm. ways that are inspired by or similar to the ways in which queerness is understood and approached in queer theory, gender studies, and or queer activism. Um, so yeah, the way, and I think you named, you named this kind of earlier, that there is a kind of inherent queerness to neurodivergence. Um, so I think, yeah, that would be number five. Number six, producing literature, art, scholarship, and other cultural artifacts that foreground neuroqueer experiences, perspectives, and voices like this, <laughs> this moment <laughs> right here. We're doing that. Um, and then producing critical responses to literature and or other cultural artifacts. Um, 
Uh, and then the last one is working to transform social and cultural environments in order to create spaces and communities and ultimately, ultimately a society in which engagement in any or all of the above practices is permitted, accepted, supported, and encouraged. And I think that's like, that's the real call to like organizing that is a mm. definitional part of neuroqueerness, right? Like we're actually trying to we've now identified all these ways that the world is designed around neuronormativity and neuroheteronormativity. So now like we need to build a different world that centers Mm -hmm. awareness as, you know, um, yeah, viable, beautiful, exquisite, generative, brilliant way to move through the world. Um, Yeah. So that's the, I hope folks feel like, okay, now I have a little bit of a sense of what this term is. And maybe, maybe you're thinking of all these other ways, you know, that like this, this could, what this could mean for you. Um, but just to do a little bit of that citational history, shout out Nick Walker and so many amazing organizers and scholars who have brought this term in, um, for us to, to chew on and work with. Um, yeah. Mm. Oh, I appreciate so much the Libra that went into laying those out and, sharing that with us because that's gives us a framework Mm -hmm. i think that's what a lot of you know that's why i am so curious about disability justice and movement work because it gives us a framework Mm -hmm. for us to orient our lives and for us to organize our lives for us to design our lives i study a lot of lifestyle design too which is just Mm -hmm. kind of creating elements of your life that center satisfaction. Mm. Like, is this satisfying to me? Even, you know, listening to you speak about this, all these terms in this language is very satisfying because it gives us possibilities. It gives us alternative ways of thinking and seeing things. And really, again, kind of shifting that power from outside of us to kind of within us and say, actually, this is a source of pride. This is a source of strength. And this is something to really... Um, lean into and and kind of and shout out loud. Um, and yes, that can be, I think I would encourage people reading and listening to, to do this in safe spaces. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, for me in my journey as a late diagnosed autistic person, I, you know, I've been in a journey of unmasking over the past few years, mm-hmm. which means having conversations like this openly. And um, it means kind of identifying with different language and sharing that language out loud. It means just letting myself show up as I am, where I am, how I am. Mm. And that's really, it can be terrifying. Yeah. And it, it, it has to, I think it's a constant analysis of how safe I am. Um, but language like this, when we, when we talk openly about it and when we um, kind of bring the beauty of it as you've been doing, it becomes easier to find safety in it because mm-hmm. I find so much safety and beauty, right? Like sensory joy and um, and colors yeah. and shapes and all these things do bring me so much safety and um, kind of ease in my body and satisfaction in my body. So it's nice to root in that. And yes. also as you share all these things, it just reminds me of the creative process in general, which I think of building the future as a creative process, like Mm -hmm. equity work and justice work and um, all of this kind of work of transformation and change is a practice of art making and creativity. It's a practice of kind of, you know, it's, which is messy and it's weird and it's fun and it's hard sometimes and it's confusing and you don't know where it's going, but it's, there's something that continues to pull you. And it's this constant listening to this drum of your intuition and all of, you know, what you've been sharing has been that and kind of, I think that's some that's a way we can think about it too when it feels daunting. Like, yeah. oh, I have to do this or I have to learn about this or I have to unlearn this or I have to No, actually we get to because this is what helps us think more creatively and expansively and fluidly and um and then that helps us also just love more fluidly and expansively too and connect and um, I think that's kind of the source of all this. Yes, so much yes. And that, that's why I love the one of the points uh, in the definition of neuroqueerness is about producing art, you know? And I'm looking mm. 
on the wall behind you where you are, there's this incredible text-based work. Um, I think it's, is it a quote by Tony Cade Bambara about, yeah, yes. the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And yeah, that is why a lot of my work is in the arts because I find that the aesthetics of access, like how we actually use accessibility as a set of compositional tools, like, you know, like it's paint, you know, it's audio, it's video. Like these are, these are actually materials. We often think of them as separate from, you know, like here's the artwork. Now we have to design this access thing, like a, you know, then after the fact we need to make it accessible. But what I'm interested in is like your work, you know, the way that you share your, the way you move through the world and the way that, I mean, especially like your makeup design, like the artistry that is your embodiment, you know, that encodes a set of aesthetics that are not just superficial. They are actually creating an aesthetic ecology that, mm. br- that brings people in, you know, like that relational invitation, like come in, share this, you know, let's proliferate all the different ways that someone might be experiencing like this moment right now, reading or listening and all the places you might be, if you are stimming right now, like if you are in the tub right now, like all, you know, this, the aesthetics of this, this kind of being together, like are just the center of what's possible, you know? And like, that is, yeah, I think, I think that's why I'm so focused on what artistry can mean when it is driven by, let's say, neuroqueerness and disability madness is because we're creating the feeling, like the actual relationship of our embodiment to the revolution, you know, and we're making it like cozy as hell. Yes. Oh my gosh. So much. Yes. We're feeling our way into the future. Yes. I think about that a lot. Like how do we not just, you know, work our way into the future, build our way, organize our way into the future, but feel our way into the future. And I love the language of the aesthetics of access mm-hmm. as an invitation. Yes. Oh yes. Cause that is what I think, you know, when people are designing experiences, that's something to think about that Actually, access adds to the aesthetic pleasure of it. It adds Boy. to it adds to the enjoyment of it. It's not just this obligation or this chore or this have to or like a checkbox on some list. No, it actually adds to the fullness of the experience. Mm-hmm. And I wish that I think that's a shift that I, I really want to plant in more people's yeah. minds. There's never no yeah. aesthetics. Like there's never right? no artistry. It's just like, what yes. kind, what kind? And why don't we make it more beautiful and more able to share with others? Yes. That, oh, that is, yeah. that is the way that um, I want to approach accessibility. Mm. Mm. That it's that you just summarized. Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. I think it's, it's time to wrap up. I think we've given people so much to sit with and chew on and digest and yes. process. And I know if I were listening or reading this, I would just want to probably like lay on the floor for mm. a good like 20 minutes after and just think about I'm a big like I need space to integrate and process. And You've been so generous with the um, with everything that you shared. So I really encourage people to integrate. Like, don't just like, all right, after this ends, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you have some time, please just sit with this because it can, it really has a power to transform so much of the way that we practice our kind of everyday values yeah. and yeah. Um, relationships and how we work and how we create. So I really encourage that with people. And yeah. the final, two questions. I have two final questions for you. Mm. And the first one is, what is some language you use to advocate for yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I am someone who is non-apparently disabled. So a lot of folks without knowing me will relate to me as an abled person. And I think um, that gives me in a lot of ways, a lot of strategic 
opportunities, you know, to recode how people even think that they can identify what disability is. And um, so I, I, I feel like I would love to, I need to like write a little bit more about this and, and make it like full, full intentional strategy. But like a lot of the language I use is very, um, I have a kind of stealth politics around it, you know? So in some spaces, like I, I'm involved in one community um, uh, of, yeah, folks who gather in um, in sanctuaries far away from cities and, um, and you know, are, are feeding each other and connecting with the land and... Um, and in that space, I could come out and be like, let's do disability justice, you know, like, and actually it's already happening here. Like there's a lot of queer elders here. You're figuring out how to, how to make them comfortable. That's disability justice. Or, and this is what I do instead, I'll say, I would like to begin a campaign in this community to vanquish our common enemy of uncomfortable seating. And it's like, okay, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's like, there's like, people think I'm kind of kidding. And then I'm like, I'm not kidding. Like, let's like, like, we're going to gather around this fire tonight and maybe we're going to do some ritual. And why are we expecting to be uncomfortable? What's the problem with getting as cozy as possible? And why not do what your body mind needs to feel really, really good, you know? Um, So sometimes the way I, the language I use for, for advocating for myself and, and with others is naming what disability justice helps us dream up in terms that are very different from the way people usually react with fear or anxiety to the language of disability, you know, because there's so much legislation, there's so much regulation around disability, which is great. That's a mark of the success of the disability rights movement. It also has created a major public consciousness around like whether I'm doing something right or wrong, am I going to get sued? Is this going to open me up to liability? You know, liability becomes the overriding affect that people bring Mm -hmm. to thinking about disability. So if you come in and you say, you know, like none of this is compliant, this seating sucks. We, you know, this is, this is someone could sue us. You know, you're just gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, everyone's going to be on edge, right? It's going to be just prickliness everywhere. Um, And that's, that's the opposite of coziness, you know? So, so I think a lot of times I deploy this kind of like, yeah, stealth language where I just like bring people directly into the work of allowing everyone to get what they need, you know? And I Mm. ask this of myself, I ask this of other people, do you have what you need? And a lot of times people who think that they have no needs because their needs are just so consistently met will be like, yep, I'm good. Thanks, babe. You know, like, got it. Got my water. I'm good. I have what I need. And I'm always like, but just take a second. Like, you know, maybe like it's a little more difficult just to like, or maybe you don't know, maybe it's going to change, but do you have what you need? You know, like, and maybe you've actually built a person that you are today because you've never actually had what you needed. And it's hard for you to even imagine what it would mean to have what you need, you know? Mm. Um, so these are the kinds of questions that I try to, the language that I try to proliferate that's outside of the usual kind of domains of recognizable disability language so that people... Mm find a kind of side door into the same house, you know, the the house of access, basically. Yes. The house of access (laughs) calls for abolishing uncomfortable seating and asking for people's needs. Mm -hmm. Love that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Love it. Love it. And my final question for you is what do you want the future to feel like? (sighs) Yeah. Um, I think it's just more coziness. It's more coziness. I did, you know, I had this amazing thing that happened to me where someone invited me to um, uh, a project that's called Artist in Presidents, which um, which I was like, okay, what does that mean? And, and this artist, Connie Hockaday, invites people to address the public as if they were president. So, so like kind of imagining like, what if we had an artist for president, you know, um, it was really difficult for me to do because I, I'm not, I just don't really live for electoral politics. You know, I am all about supporting the organizers who are focusing on increasing voter access and that's amazing. But like, I don't really think elected office is where a lot of the change that I'm imagining is going to happen. It just happens more one-on-one directly meeting people's survival needs. It's outside of major systems. 
So it was really tricky. I was like, what would I actually say? Like if I were addressing it just, yeah, it really short-circuited a bunch of things. And when I finally found my way, the speech that I wrote, and we also worked with this amazing speech writer, like we really had to like kind of transform into the political arena, which so many artists have never done. Like that was part of what this project is about. And I just called for coziness to be a political practice, you know, and think about whose coziness has always been threatening, whose coziness has always been difficult. Who can buy coziness? You know, there's people out here who have just like, there's a market for coziness. People are buying up enormous amounts of coziness that they do not need. And other people have never even imagined what it could be like to just relish in coziness because their experience of the world is just through self-advocacy, exhaustion, you know, not the opposite of coziness. So, um, yeah, I think of the, I think of the future as a place where disabled communities are actually together in comfort. And if, and if you really think about what that would mean, I think from out from that dream is a whole set of incredible transformations, you know, um, that are like, maybe next week, right? Like we could always be on the cusp of making this cozy world possible. Um, and so, yeah, so that that is what I, I dream of the future, a cozy, comfortable place for absolutely everyone. Oh, love that so much. Who doesn't love to be cozy? <laughs> right, right. And we're about to head into winter. I don't know if people are listening from, from winter coziness or summer coziness. You know, there's so many right. seasonal cozinesses. Um, That's true. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, tell us where we can find you online, where we can support you, where we can continue learning from you. Please tell us. Ah, well, thank you. I mean, so I have to say, like, I did so much research and there's so much that I discovered about myself in, in preparing for this interview. So I do want to tell people, like, hold me accountable to this. I want to write more about neuroqueerness as it shows up for me, as it could be an organizing framework, like what we can do with it, the way that it can in intervene in the work that we're doing, especially movement work that's building community power. So I just want to leave that. I hope soon you find me in the digital realm and there's more that I've written about this because this, this conversation has just been so profoundly generative for me. Um, and the way you would probably, yeah, come upon that is my website is kevingotkin.com. I'm, um, yeah, you'll find a bunch of like my work there. Um, the thing that I, yeah, connect with most people on is, um, is a weekly newsletter that I think we mentioned at the top, uh, called Crip News. So it's, um, yeah, every week I just gather a bunch of things that are happening in disability politics, disability arts. Um, so that's cripnews.substack.com or in the Substack app, you can just search Crip News. Um, and yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me around, but um, uh, yeah, just feel free to get in touch. Um, like, yeah, I, I, this is how I think of myself as an almost organizer is just like when people reach out and they're thinking about something, I can kind of tessellate that, you know, put that into a pattern with all these other folks. So connecting with others, especially new folks is really important. So please, please get in touch. And, and if there's anything like, if there's any resources or people working on stuff that I can help point people to like that, that's the, that's the best stuff. Um, I also um, am helping steward a nightlife, a disability centric nightlife collective called the remote access party series. So you can check us out. Um, uh, yeah. Search, just Google search remote access uh, party collective and you'll find us. Um, and I'm around and I'm so grateful to have, to have shared this space with you, Jez. Thank you for having me. Amazing. And as a reminder, we'll have these in the show notes so you can click through and subscribe and stay updated. Thank you so much, Kevin, for your time and your energy <laughs> and your wisdom. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Me too. Thank you, Jez. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Dreaming Different, hosted by Jez Chung for Deem Journal's audio series. If there's anything in this episode that resonated with you, we invite you to be a part of our exploration in collective dreaming by sharing Dreaming Different with people you know and leaving a review on any podcast platform. 
Reviews are immensely helpful for our reach and impact. Also, as a neurodivergent tip, I find that I process information more deeply when I listen or read something for a second time after I've had some time to digest it. Sometimes I even listen on 1.5 or 2 times speed, and that feels really good for my brain. Sharing those tips in case they can support you in processing all of this delicious information. Big thanks to the entire team at Dean. Alexis Aceves-Garcia, June Lin, Jorge Vallecios, Alice Grandois-Sutka, Isabel Flower, New Gote, George Porras, and Amy Mae Garrett for their contributions to the ideation and production of this series. Special thank you to New Gote for composing the dreamy music you hear throughout the series. It took so many conversations, iterations, and practices of spaciousness to bring dreaming different to you, and we hope it helps expand your ideas of the future, the world, and the possibilities we can create together. If you're new to Dreaming Different, we recommend checking out the introductory episode, which lays out the origins of this series, what we intend to explore throughout the episodes, and my personal journey with the neurodiversity paradigm. Episode one also includes some somatic and mindfulness tools to use if you feel any discomfort or tension while listening. You can find the complete series, including transcripts and show notes at deemjournal.com slash audio and deemjournal on Instagram at D-E-E-M-J-O-U-R-N-A-L. I'm Jez Chung. You can find me at J-E-Z-Z-C-H-U-N-G across social media. And I hope you do something to take care of yourself today and all the days ahead. Thank you for dreaming with me.